This is the final episode in a multi-part series. We will return to our usual schedule of the 1st and the 15th on Tuesday, February 1st. Jennifer vanished sometime in the overnight hours. Right now, there is no trace. Investigators say evidence leads them to believe that she's dead. Stick my nose back on the trail. That's all I can do. This is already gone. Already gone. Already In October of 2000, Justin Mello went to work at his part-time job at Mancino's Pizza and Grinders, a popular pizza place in his hometown of New Baltimore, Michigan. While his co-worker was out on a delivery, 16-year-old Justin, who was alone in the store, was forced into the restaurant cooler where he was shot execution-style and left for dead. This senseless crime shook the city, and a six-department task force worked to investigate the crime and bring his killer or killers to justice. When we last spoke, David Bauman and Dennis Bryan had confessed to the murder of Justin Mello, which led to the quick release of Frank and Jonathan, who had spent six months behind bars for a crime that they were adamant they didn't commit, a crime for which there was no physical evidence linking them. The prosecutor admitted that the confessions from Bowman and Bryan would provide a jury with too much reasonable doubt, and he petitioned the court for charges to be dropped. While they had confessed to Justin's murder, a lengthy and complex court process was underway. Dennis and David were charged, or going to be charged, with three murders in three different states, and the journey to justice for all of their victims would be a long and complex one. On April 19, 2001, David pled guilty to the murder of Norman Pelfrey, the gun store clerk in Bristol, Virginia. This guilty plea, which was part of a deal that he made, meant that he wouldn't face a trial. Instead, he went straight to the sentencing phase, and the judge handed down a sentence of life in prison without the possibility of parole. Dennis, on the other hand, he opted to go to trial and was found guilty of Norman's murder a few months later. Between the guilty verdict and the sentencing, the state of Michigan filed arrest warrants for both men. However, there wasn't much that could be done until Dennis was sentenced. Once David and Dennis were both sentenced, then Michigan and Florida could start the extradition process. Both states needed to work out between them who would have the next trial and who would need to wait. The state of Tennessee also decided to charge the men with armed robbery, and they joined the negotiations. While the pair had long prison terms ahead of them in Virginia, all three states wanted justice served for their citizens. Dennis's sentencing hearing was held on September 7, 2001. Because he didn't actively participate in the murder of Norman Pelfrey, but did admit to casing the store and agreed with David that they couldn't leave any witnesses behind, the jury recommended a 50-year sentence. The judge agreed with jurors, and Dennis was sentenced to 50 years behind bars, which consisted of 40 for the murder and 10 years for robbing the gun store. Dennis said he felt his charge should have been robbery and not murder since he wasn't present for the attack. And he claimed he didn't remember any of it because he was intoxicated. However, in Virginia, as is true in many states... Being an accessory before or after the fact carries the same sentencing options as if you committed the murder yourself. 
David and Dennis next faced charges in Florida for the murder of Lee Pennington during the armed robbery of the Subway store in St. Augustine. Both were found guilty and were sentenced to two life terms, one for each of the charges. Dennis appealed the sentence, but his conviction was affirmed. Considering that Florida, like Virginia, is a death penalty state, both men were fortunate not to face harsher consequences. David Bauman and Dennis Bryan would face their charges in Michigan next. However, the wheels of justice can turn slowly. And, in this case, they turned excruciatingly slow. And many other events happened in that time. Before we get to the prosecution of David and Dennis, you need to know that they were not the only ones to face charges for Justin's murder. Ken Cook, the owner of Mancino's, was also charged. You might be thinking, wait, he wasn't even there that night. Well, in Michigan, there are laws protecting minors who work, and one of those laws dictates the times that they can and cannot work. A 16-year-old like Justin was not allowed to work after 10.30 p.m. on a weeknight and is not allowed to handle cash after sunset without being supervised by an adult. When Jeffrey Arati went out on the delivery that he thought was for a friend of Ken Cook's, Justin was left alone in the store. This is a violation of Michigan law. Ken Cook pled guilty to one charge and pled no contest to another charge as part of a plea deal. Cook was sentenced to one year of probation as well as a fine of $1,000 against his business and a $500 personal fine. In addition to these penalties, the Mello family filed a civil suit against Ken Cook and Mancino's. They were seeking $1 million for wrongful death and emotional damages. As well as the suit against Ken, the Mello family filed wrongful death suits against Frank, Matt, Jonathan, David, and Dennis. On October 2, 2001, a few weeks before the first anniversary of Justin's murder, Jonathan filed a $600 million lawsuit against the city of New Baltimore. He singled out three specific police officers and a state trooper in his case. That same day, Frank filed his own $600 million lawsuit, although he included Chesterfield Township and an additional officer and trooper in his filing. This is according to the Detroit Free Press. In the suits, the men claimed their civil rights were violated and that they were victims of, quote, gross negligence, false imprisonment, defamation, and malicious prosecution. Their suits included details of their interrogation where they were intimidated into confessing to a crime they didn't commit, where they were deprived of food and rest, and where they were told they could only go home if they confessed. The suits outlined the 178 days they spent in jail, the majority of which they were held in solitary confinement. Matthew, who had spent less time in jail and had not confessed because he was allowed his mother in the room when he was interrogated, Matthew filed his own suit for $100 million. His suit included the city, the police, and the school where he was rejected due to their belief that he was guilty and therefore a danger to others. The families of Frank, Jonathan, and Matthew stood by them as they filed their lawsuits. In newspaper interviews, they spoke of how unsafe they felt in town, the comments they received, and the threats they heard. Matthew had been the victim of at least one mugging since his release, and the families were afraid to leave their homes. Not only did they fear being assaulted, they were afraid their homes would be vandalized in their absence. 
Since the case was still in the media on a regular basis, the one-year anniversary of Justin's murder did not come with the usual flurry of newspaper articles that one expects. There was coverage, sure, with timelines and a recap of the past year's events, but no more than usual. The Mello family unveiled Justin's tombstone, which was set next to the placeholder white cross marking his grave. It was covered in dedications and messages that had marked his burial site since the funeral. The family of Matthew Daniels marked the day differently. His family considered sending him out of town for the anniversary in case there was any backlash. Backlash from people who still believed Matthew was involved in Justin's murder. Jonathan's family prepared for more undesired attention from the public as well. And Frank, who worked construction, he was also laying low. The three teenagers were trying to get their lives back to something that resembled normal. They didn't know that things were going to change for the worse once again. And listeners, we'll be right back. On October 26, 2001, police were called to an incident at the Warren Plaza Apartments on Hoover in Warren. Police had received a call about a large fight in the parking lot. While they were en route to break up the fight, they received an update that someone had been stabbed. When police arrived on scene, they saw a young man covered in blood receiving CPR from bystanders. The young man was 20-year-old Frank Kuken. He had a large and bloody wound on the side of his torso. He was clearly in medical distress. Police instructed those performing CPR to continue so they could call for backup, secure the scene, and gather witnesses. The fire department arrived and continued CPR until an ambulance transported Frank to Bi-County Hospital. Once he arrived at Bi-County Hospital, he was pronounced dead in the early hours of October 27th, a year to the day from his arrest and the murder of Justin Mello. It was the middle of the night when Frank's stepmother was called to the hospital to attend to Frank. She was not given any other information, just that she needed to get there. When she arrived at the hospital, she was informed that the young man she'd raised since he was a boy had been murdered. An investigation was launched, and police pieced together a timeline of events at the Warren Plaza apartments. A friend of Frank's, a guy named Brandon, had been at the apartments earlier that day to sell drugs. The purchase turned violent, and Brandon was attacked by at least six individuals. Brandon fled without the drugs or the money for them. He went to Hazel Park, where his friends, including Frank, were hanging out. And these friends agreed to go with him to the apartments and confront the person who stole from Brandon. Once back at the apartments, rocks were thrown at the windows, threats and taunts were yelled, and one of the men got a tire iron from the back of Brandon's truck. The group inside the apartment came out and the yelling continued for a few minutes before a physical altercation occurred. According to witness statements, Frank was throwing rocks during the fight while others were throwing punches and another swung the tire iron. One witness statement claimed that Frank took a knife with him to the fight. At some point during the fight, a 17-year-old high school senior named Zeft Mikaj pulled out a knife that he had armed himself with before leaving the apartment. According to Zeft, He was waving it around and making slashing motions in self-defense. Not long after Zeph pulled the knife, Frank was fatally stabbed. Someone yelled that someone else had been cut, likely once they saw the blood, and Frank managed to stumble a few yards away before he collapsed in the middle of the parking lot and bystanders started CPR. 
Zeph, a student at Centerline High School, didn't walk away unscathed. He'd been stabbed in the chaos of the fight. According to statements given to the police, once Zeph fell to the pain in his back, he returned to the apartment building with a broken knife handle still in his hand. His friends joined him and they started talking about the person who had got cut. Zeph said that one of the other people was armed with a knife, but he got them and, quote, got the guy really good. He then held out the knife, which was missing its blade, and asked someone to do something with the handle. The handle was wrapped in a paper towel, and it was flushed down the toilet at the suggestion of one of the men. A later search of the apartment's plumbing did not result in the handle being found. Zeph was transported to South Macomb Hospital, where he was treated for minor injuries. Once he'd been treated, he was taken back to the station and questioned by police. With the information from the witness statements, police were certain that Zeph was responsible for Frank's death. He was informed at the station that Frank's death was the result of knife wounds, and Zeph seemed distressed by this news. He said in his statements that everything happened quickly, and he was swinging the knife around to protect himself, but he at no point intentionally stabbed anyone. He remembers feeling a pain in his back from where he was stabbed and said he ran into the apartment after that. He said there was a lot of adrenaline and his memories of the fight were not clear. Following this interview, Zeph was taken into custody. During Frank's autopsy, the coroner discovered three knife wounds, one to his chest, which was made with the knife blade facing upwards, a similar wound to his back, and one to his finger, which was consistent with a defensive wound. The chest wound was so deep that it punctured Frank's heart, which caused massive blood loss, and the wound to his back punctured his lung. With these injuries, Frank would have bled out in minutes. The knife blade was found lodged inside the wound in his back. The handle had obviously broken off during the assault. The five-and-a-half-inch long blade was carefully removed and preserved as evidence. The medical examiner determined that the wounds were made in a forceful and deliberate stabbing motion. This contradicted the slashing that Zeph said he participated in. With the autopsy showing that Frank's wounds were the result of deliberate stabbing, a warrant was issued for Zeph's arrest, and he was taken to appear before a judge. He was assigned a public defender and entered a not-guilty plea to a manslaughter charge. The judge set bond at $50,000, and Zeph was released. At the preliminary examination, Zeph's lawyer tried to get the charges dropped, saying that Zeph was acting in self-defense and that a charge carrying a maximum sentence of 15 years was not appropriate for someone who acted to preserve their own life. The judge agreed with his attorney, and the charges were dismissed in April of 2002. This decision was appealed by the prosecutors, and the circuit court heard the case, and they decided the charges should stay, and Zeph Makaj was once again charged with Frank's murder. In October of 2002, Zeph's name appeared in papers when he and his brother were charged with assault following a fight at a college tailgate party. The prosecutors in Macomb County used this new charge as reason to get Zeph's bond increased or revoked, while the prosecutor in Isabella County, where the assault occurred, used his upcoming trial for Frank's death to push for an increased bond. On November 24th, Zeph was arraigned and charged with assault with intent to do great bodily harm a felony which carried a maximum sentence of 10 years in prison. And while Zeph did do some time behind bars for Frank's murder, it wasn't the decades he might have seen had he faced more serious charges than manslaughter. Zeph Makaj died in 2021 at the age of 37. 
While all of this was going on, the Mello family still prayed for justice, and they spent years searching for long-awaited answers in the death of their son. It would take a long time for Dennis and David to arrive in Michigan to answer for their crimes. Rather than going through a trial, in the spring of 2006, both pled no contest to felony murder charges. Dennis's lawyer advised his client to fight the charge, but Dennis declined and decided on the no-contest plea. The results were unsatisfying, not only for the Mello family, but for the community. Dennis and David opted for the no-contest plea because they claimed they were so intoxicated at the time of Justin's murder that they could not recall the events of that fateful night. It's also worth noting that a no-contest plea cannot be used against them in a civil suit. There were several civil suits filed in this case, but the results of these suits, whether or not money was awarded, has not been made public. If you look for information on Justin Mello today, you can see that he has a legacy in his community. Police agencies in both New Baltimore and Chesterfield Township refer to their Kid Print program, which fingerprints and photographs young children for their parents in the event that the child goes missing, as the Justin Mello Kid Print program. David Bauman and Dennis Bryan are both in their early 40s and serving life sentences at prisons in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Justin Mello, who should be 38 this year, is at the St. Mary's Cemetery in New Baltimore, Michigan. Thank you for coming with us on the long and winding journey through this case. We'll be back on Tuesday, February 1st with a new episode. Until then, I appreciate you listening and please be safe.